Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's the argument. I'm Jane Coaston. Since the midterms, you may have noticed a almost manic glee from certain sectors of the Republican Party and its media apparatuses. That maybe, at long last, Trump has lost his grip on the party. Or, more accurately, an almost desperate pleading to Republican voters, please let him go. But if that's the case, who is the Republican Party leader now? What does Republicanism even stand for anymore? And who'd win in a brawl? Trump or Ron DeSantis? Trump is taller. God help us, I can't believe we're going to do this for another two years. Ross Douthat is back this week to answer those questions with me and Kevin D. Williamson, national correspondent for The Dispatch and a longtime writer of the American conservative movement. Hello, Ross. Long time no see. Hey, Jane. It's great to be back. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We are recording this mere hours before Donald Trump is reportedly going to either announce a Android update to Truth Social or he is reportedly going to announce his 2024 candidacy. Either way, by the time this episode is out tomorrow morning, we are very likely running into the third Trump campaign for president because we are sinners. And uh, this is our extremely specific punishment for our sins. So whether he does or not, I think we can talk about it in this conversation as a safe inevitability, like the sands of time or Mel Kuyper on ESPN talking about the NFL draft like eight months before it happens. Like we just kind of know what's going to happen so we can talk about it as if it's going to happen. So top punditry question that I hate, but I kind of have to ask in a hypothetical or real Trump Ron DeSantis primary, who wins? Kevin? Ah, gosh, I hate that you put it that way, because I do think it could go either way. If I were betting my own money on it right now today, I would still bet on Trump. But I think that it is possible and maybe even likely that uh, DeSantis could take him out if he decided to. Russ? I would have said 60-40 Trump before the events of the midterm elections. And now just yeah, just for the sake of the argument, I'll say 40-60, and I'd bet on DeSantis at those odds. Ross, last week you told me that your money would be on Trump. So what do you think has changed this week? I do think some things have changed. I think that as bad as the midterm results looked initially for Trump, they look a bit worse now. When last we spoke, it wasn't quite clear just how stark the divergence was between sort of what you might call normie Republicans and MAGA stop the steal Republicans. But now that we've reached a point where things are not completely wrapped up, Carrie Lake, as of this speaking, has not officially conceded the governorship in Arizona. But it was an even worse midterm outcome for Trump than I think was clear on election night itself. And then we've had a little bit of post-election polling showing Trump behind DeSantis. The one from the morning consult shows Trump leading DeSantis nationally in a national race, like 47 to 33. 
I think if you're Trump and you're starting out below 50% against DeSantis, you're not in an ideal position. Those changes add up to enough for me to justify that you could reasonably bet on DeSantis to beat him. So before we get into what all of this means and what this says about the Republican Party and conservatism moving forward, I'm curious about Trump's timing. Now, there's always going to be somebody who says that this is a tactical decision, especially because everyone's really mad and all the people who were kind of on the Trump train late are looking for the exits. But I personally think that Trump is just an extremely bored person and that running for office gives him something to do besides, I don't know, talking on a social networking platform no one uses. Kevin, what do you think was going into this timing? I think Trump more or less plays these things by gut. And I do think that you're right that boredom almost certainly plays a large role in his decision making. But I I suspect it's just that he thinks that right now is the time to make a decision because there's just been an election and everyone's talking about it. And so if he is going to position himself as the, you know, returning savior, then now is probably the time to do it. And there's also, of course, the idea of wanting to get in and uh, build up some momentum for himself and some some loyalty to himself before someone else gets in the race. So no one is going to ask me to do the GOP autopsy that I think needs to be done. So let's do it between the three of us. The big question I want to get into is, has Trump lost his stranglehold on the party? Because I'm looking at all the politician responses and the media responses and asking, like, Hasn't anyone learned anything over the last six years that every, like, six months Trump does something where everyone's like, this is it, we're done? And it could go from, if you're the uh, grabbing by the pussy tape or Charlottesville or January 6th itself. And each time there have been people like, I can't do it. So I feel as if, once again, we're in a space in which it's not just underestimating Trump. It is attempting to move voters away from Trump. And you're hearing that from the Wall Street Journal, New York Post, and kind of all Murdoch media. You're hearing that from a host of Republican politicians. But I want to ask both of you, is this the moment that Trump is, his grip on the Republican Party is weakening? Ross, what do you think? I mean, I think what makes this potentially different than some of the other moments that you mentioned is the presence of an alternative force, personality, character that you can rally around and still remain a conservative Republican who doesn't like liberals and Democrats, right? So long as Trump was president, to break with Trump was to cast in your lot effectively with the Democratic Party. In general, since Trump won the nomination low these six years ago, there have not been clear moments when you can leave Trump behind and say, but I'm still a Republican and a conservative and a fighter and so on because I'm supporting X. And now Ron DeSantis is X. And so his availability makes this a more dangerous moment for Trump. I think that if losing an election were enough to pry people away from Trump, they would have left him in 2018 or certainly in 2020 when he was actually a candidate in the election that was lost. I think that the idea that Trump is going to... um, lose a great deal of support among his most energetic acolytes over an election in which he was not a candidate is not likely to be the case. Trump's connection with his people is not based on winning elections. It's essentially a religious movement. They really do have this kind of supernatural, metaphysical, personal connection with him. And that is not something that's going to be lightly brushed aside. And so that's what really, I think, 
keeps these people connected to him in that way. He could lose a whole lot of elections and and behave really, really badly after losing an election. I mean, the guy did try to stage a coup d'etat and overthrow the government of the United States. And his people did not walk away from him after that. They're not going to walk away from him, I think, necessarily after a midterm. That being said, the um, vulnerabilities he has are vulnerabilities that can particularly be exploited by DeSantis. The greatest point of disappointment between Trump's people and Trump was his response to COVID. He is uh, more or less going along with the national program on that, not firing Fauci and all that. And DeSantis became a kind of culture war mascot, mainly over COVID response. And I think that among the people who are the really, really hardcore committed uh, Trump acolytes, this is still a very, very lively issue for them, something they care about a great deal. And that is the place where uh, DeSantis has an opportunity to sort of turn the tables on Trump in terms of cultural confrontation, which is a different thing from winning elections. Yeah, I I think that's an interesting point, because I think one thing I was definitely wrong about with the midterms was the degree to which a host of Democratic leaders were not punished for being comparatively strict on COVID. Mm -hmm. One of the funny things about these midterms was the degree to which COVID policies did not seem to play a role, perhaps outside of Florida. We saw in Ohio that Mike DeWine, he faced a brief impeachment attempt in uh, November of 2020 from Republicans. And it turns out two years later, nobody cared. Ross says that Trump's hold on the Republican Party has loosened. Kevin says sort of. I'm just wondering if this is sort of mass confirmation bias, because I think that everyone in the Republican Party is still modeling themselves off of Trump. I think we're we're still very much in a Trumpian era, in Trump's era. Am I wrong to think that all this talk of Trump and people moving on is an attempt to ask voters to move on and not a reflection of them? Kevin, what do you think? You know, I think DeSantis is kind of a bizarro world uh, Mitt Romney in that when Romney was running for president, mm-hmm. everyone kind of in the Republican world knew that the pro-choice, socially moderate guy from Massachusetts was the fake Mitt Romney. And so they were confident that, you know, the real Mitt Romney was going to be a lot more of a traditional conservative. DeSantis is, there's a sense that the kind of Trumpish element of his career is performative and that he is basically at heart sort of a covert normie, someone who is interested in trying to be a reasonably good governor. And although people will disagree with him, certainly on some of the policy questions, has shown himself to be reasonably competent executor in office, I think, in a lot of ways, in terms of things like hurricane responses Mm -hmm. and things like that, that he's done a reasonably good job with. There is some sense in DeSantis that he certainly is exaggerating the kind of... uh, culture war aspect of his persona in a way that's not true for characters like Carrie Lake, who don't really have anything else. It's just what they are. They aren't really, there's, you know, sort of a a deeper policy agenda there or a philosophy of governance or even an an interest in those things. Well, I mean, one, one point is that Carrie Lake lost. Right. Right. Blake Masters That's what they want you to believe. (laughs) Right. Well, but, well, but interestingly, I mean, we, we will see what happens with Lake and Mark Fincham in terms of conceding, but in general, Republicans have conceded in normal ways mm-hmm. in this election, even Doug Mastriano, that in certain ways, the Trumpiest candidate by some definitions of Trumpiness in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, wrote a long concession. I don't get a sort of post-midterm vibe that all of the people who supported these candidates in primaries are just like, you know, ready to go to the barricades for them and recreate 
January 6th. Ro- Ross, we really state, need you to not speak too soon. <laughs> in state housing. Well, I'm, no, I'm, I'm just saying that's my impression now. And if Doug Mastriano's supporters launch a big stop the steal effort and storm the state capitol in Pennsylvania, I will eat crow. Mm-hmm. Seriously. But I'm just doing analysis of the Republican mood right now. The normal candidates won. The Trumpiest candidates lost. There is not, as far as I can tell, a kind of roiling mass energy behind the idea that the Trumpy candidates were all completely robbed. There are, you know, there are obviously people on Twitter and on talk radio who are mm-hmm. like, you know, the Democrats stuffed the ballot box again and so on. But that's sort of a return to kind of normal election sore loserdom, mm-hmm. I would say, so far. We'll see. I think Ron DeSantis is really not like Trump at all. The mixture of his sort of competence and willingness to fight culture war battles aggressively makes liberals and libertarians dislike him. And there may be good reasons for this dislike, but that's really not at all like the Trump style. Ron DeSantis is a super introvert, as anyone who spent any time with him will attest. He has a kind of anti-charisma, which... Again, maybe a problem for him in the primary campaign, but it's not as simple as, oh, DeSantis is just succeeding by imitating Trump. I would say generally, I mean, I think, Jane, you are absolutely right that there is a segment of the Republican electorate that's just going to vote for Trump, Mm -hmm. no matter what happens on (laughs) Twitter.com or with endorsements or strategists or whatever. But yeah, there's a segment of Republicans who will just vote for Trump. And what we don't know is how big that is. Does it end up looking like his core primary support in 2016, which would not have been enough for him to win a head-to-head race with a really strong opponent? Or does it look like 60%? And we just don't know. But both of those seem like reasonable possibilities. What's interesting, kind of amusing about the apparent willingness and readiness of these folks to make concession speeches is that they come from a political tendency that's obsessed with conspiracy theories. And this is one of the few elections in which there kind of actually was a conspiracy afoot and one that was really um, fairly open, which was the Democratic intervention in a number of Republican Mm -hmm. primary races that elevated these very candidates who pretty much all lost. Um, There was a big roll of the dice on the Democrats' part. These folks could have won, and that would really come back to, I think, discredit some of the people who were involved in that. But it actually paid off. And these folks who, again, think of themselves as being the ones who you know can see the story behind the story really don't seem to appreciate that they got played, You know that this was a bit of strategery that really paid off in a big way. And they don't seem to really fully understand their own role in it and their own sort of complicity in throwing away these races that probably would have been winnable in many cases. To be fair, nobody nobody forced Republican primary voters. I want to go back to something that Ross said, because I, I do think that there's either the idea, that, as you put it, that he's different from Trump, he's much less extroverted, but DeSantis is in some ways a creation of Trump, and that's something Trump has said himself. DeSantis has done all of the culture warring that Trump symbolized. His big school control bills, like the so-called Don't Say Gay bill, the Stop Woke Act, the fights against both Twitter and Disney, lots of like, owning the libs type things? Is that the Trump effect? And does DeSantis appeal if Trump's not there? Does he appeal when he is opposing Trump? Do people want pragmatic Trump or Trumpism without Trump? I think Trump sort of showed the way in some sense to a lot of Republican politicians on that. Some of these 
transformations were already underway uh, well before Trump was on the scene. I think, you know, in Texas, where I live, that certainly is the case. I think we're seeing Florida as a state that is going through a kind of cultural transformation right now, a lot like what Texas went through in the last 15 to 20 years. So I, I think that Trump really demonstrated that this can be politically effective and that it can get you a nomination. It can get you to advance through the ranks in a way that having a really good tax plan wouldn't or a really good health care reform proposal wouldn't. So I think, yeah, Trump was probably more of a supercharging element there than a creating element itself. Well, I mean, I, I something that's a really open question about a Trump-DeSantis contest is to what extent does policy actually factor in? I mean, clearly these questions about the culture war and how Trump versus DeSantis handled COVID are going to matter. But one of the things about 2016 was that it was actually a very policy-rich primary fight in this very strange way, because what Trump was able to really effectively do in 2016 was exploit this big gap between a segment of the Republican vote and where the Republican Party's leaders actually stood, which is to say Trump ran to the right of the party establishment on immigration and to its left on foreign policy and really economic policy writ large. And again, not in like, you know, 20 page think tank white papers, but in a sense of like saying we're losing all our jobs to China uh, we can't win any wars. George W. Bush actually sucked, which was like something that the Republican mm -hmm. Party had been sort of waiting for someone to acknowledge on foreign policy. And Trump did it. And everyone's like, oh, he's going to get punished for this. Mm -hmm. And of course he didn't. Right. So this was a really, really important part of Trump's appeal or his success in 2016, sort of intuiting that there was this mismatch. But that gap between Trump and the party really narrowed over the course of his presidency. Mm -hmm. And partially it was that he pulled the party in his direction on certain issues, pulled them away from entitlement reform and pulled them in his direction on immigration. In part, he moved towards the party's direction. He was sort of a normal tax-cutting Republican in various ways. So is there a version of that in 2024? Does Trump try and run against DeSantis on some issues, right? Like, does Trump try and get to the left of the party on foreign policy again? Does he say, I'm going to make peace with Putin and with and with Xi and with Beijing, right? I'm going to be the peacemaker. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. These, these, maybe nothing happens. Maybe it's literally just all culture war and Fauci talk. But what I definitely think is that Trump needs a strategy. He can't just come in and coast the way it seemed like he might have been able to 18 months ago. And that's a real thing that the gap between um, sort of Republican ideology and where a lot of Republican voters are, and that's been there for a long time. You know, one of the great ironies of the kind of history of the conservative movement is it was founded by people who were opposed to the New Deal and then found their great political champion in Ronald Reagan, who spent his career describing himself as a New Deal Democrat who was alienated from his party by certain kinds of radicalism. So the idea of having someone who speaks to a certain kind of social traditionalism and social conservatism, who shares a sense of enmity towards certain perceived cultural enemies, but who is not a kind of, you know, Friedmanite uh, libertarian, seems like a natural place for a Republican candidate to be in a lot of ways. People like me who um, are, you know, sort of libertarian-leaning classical liberal types don't always like to admit this, but it's distinctly minority political tendency, including within the Republican Party. Including within the Libertarian Party. 
Well, those people are kooks. <laughs> Hey, listener, I have a question. Have you ever changed your mind about your political party? Asking for a friend who is me. I'm thinking about what I changed my mind on this year, and I'd love to hear what made you change your political party affiliation if you have. Tell me in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324, and you may hear yourself in a future episode about party hopping. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. My big question, I want to ask both of you, what is driving this party? There has been no update to the GOP platform, especially I think I've noticed it since the Dobbs decision came down, that the so-called barstool conservatives who got interested or started voting for some Republicans because of the kind of like anti-establishment, don't tell me what to do, COVID policy Republicans are very different from the attempting to ban abortion nationally or attempting to ban abortion with no exceptions in certain states type of Republican, because fusionism has always been a very tough thing to do when you don't have, say, global communism to oppose. But if we have like all these variations of what conservatism could be coming together, but often in conflict, because the idea of social conservatives cultural conservatives, fiscal conservatives have never really gotten along. If the party is for anything, what is it, Kevin? Well, I think you overlooked that there was one big important innovation in the Republican platform in 2020, which was just not having one. (laughs) I guess that is a decision. Yes. It is a decision. And I think it was a, a telling one because you're dealing with a party in which these things are seen as an afterthought at best, if you think about them at all. You know, I used to, because I was younger and naive, believed that the, you know, conservative movement was really about ideas and that the left was really about an enemies list. You know, we don't like religious people. We don't like businesses. We don't like the military. We don't like the police. What I've come to understand, of course, is that both political tendencies are really basically just enemies lists. The one thing that people who identify broadly with the Republican Party have in common isn't some policy platform or set of political goals or economic views or anything like that. It's a set of 
prejudices and rivalries and hatreds. And I think the same broadly holds true on the flip side, that um, what really holds the left together is anti-rightism and what holds the right together is is anti-leftism. So I have, I have my doubts about whether any of this policy stuff is really going to be all that important as much as it pains me to say it. And I think that unless there actually is a real operative fiscal crisis that is immediately forcing the government to make decisions in a way that will uh, be noticed quickly, like, you know, cutting Social Security benefits by 20% because you've essentially run out of money and you're running into trouble with borrowing anymore, which is where we're headed, unless you start seeing Social Security checks bouncing, so to speak. I don't expect those issues to be all that important in 2024. Russ, what do you think? Um, The Republican Party is united by a desire not to have liberals in power. That has turned out to be a pretty successful unifier for the party in the Trump era. The reality is that the Democratic Party over the last five or 10 years has moved substantially to the left and enacted a lot of policies or pushed for a lot of policies that the Obama and John Kerry era party didn't push for. The country has swung substantially to the left on social issues. The country is a pretty unhappy place in a lot of ways right now. I think that combination of a sort of more ideologically aggressive left and general discontent, that's that's enough to hold the Republican coalition together. Now, at a deeper level, the problem for conservatism is that it set out, say, 50 to 70 years ago to conserve a set of aspects of American life, ranging from reliable Christian religious practice to a communitarian social order to a sort of dynamic commercial capitalist society. And all of those things have gotten a lot weaker in various ways and put the right in a position where in order to sort of be true to what it imagines itself to be defending, it has to be more reactionary than conservative. It has to say we are not just preserving what exists, we are rebuilding what we've lost. And nobody really knows how to do that. And that's the big obstacle, right, that, you know, Ron DeSantis fighting Disney to a draw is not going to reverse the decline of marriage rates in the United States. But that's sort of the deep ideological dilemma. But just as a political matter, the Republican Party will lose elections, but it can certainly coast as an anti-liberal formation for the foreseeable future, I think. Kevin, Ross, thank you both so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Kevin. Always a pleasure. Kevin D. Williamson is national correspondent for The Dispatch and a writer-in-residence at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Ross Douthat is a columnist for Times Opinion. And he writes a newsletter you can find a link in our show notes to subscribe to. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Vishaka Durba, and Derek Arthur. Edited by Alison Brujek and Amber Von Chasson. With original music by Isaac Jones' Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Mary Marge Locker, and Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta, with editorial support from Christina Samuluski. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.